I, I don't know how you feel about geese, uh, the plural, geese, goose, right? I don't know how you feel about geese, but uh, there's a number of people in my area uh, who have geese on their lawns, you know, the lawn ornaments, and I don't get it because uh, if geese are ever really on your lawn, they make a mess, you know, uh, the uh, softball field, one of the softball fields that we played at this past season, they have these uh, metal uh, dogs uh, that are cut out and stuck into the different places of the field to, to kind of ward off the geese that, that make a mess out of, out of grass and fields like that. So, so you, you really don't want geese on your lawn, right? Uh, so I don't care for them very much, but I love geese that are flying. I love geese in flight. Uh, there's just something about them. You, you often can hear them before you can see them, you know, like you might be just working in the backyard or you might be walking down the street and you begin to hear them honking, you know, and as they're, as they're approaching, you look up and they're, they're just so graceful as they, they, they cross the sky, you know. Uh, ever, ever hear of that expression, you silly goose, right? Yeah. Whoever termed that expression doesn't know Geese, goose, they you know, because geese are not silly. Now, let, me, let me tell you why. W- one of the things that, that is so interesting about them is one of the reasons why they fly in a V formation. Did you ever notice that? They fly in a V formation. Scientists have discovered the reason why they do that is because each, each goose creates enough updraft behind him for the, for the goose that's behind him that it causes the whole flock to fly, listen, 71% in greater distance than if they were flying on their own. I mean, that's amazing. I see you're not very impressed, but believe me, it really is amazing. That's the difference between a Canadian goose vacationing in Jersey for the winter or vacationing in Miami. Now, now, which would you rather? You know, nobody... People like to fly over Jersey. They don't like to stay in Jersey, not, not, not in the wintertime anyway, right? But, but listen, some of the interesting things about, about is, is not only the, the creation of this uplift for, for the bird that's behind them, but if, if a bird kind of falls out of the formation and, and the drag affects them so much and, and they strive so much, they, they immediately get back into the formation, right? And, and, and this, this is so cool. Listen, listen. If, if, a, if a goose uh, is injured or gets sick while in flight uh, and has to, you know, land, two of the other geese break the formation and they go down with the other goose and they stand protecting and, and providing for that goose until he either gets better or he passes away, you know. But that's, isn't, that, isn't that cool? Uh, think about this. Remember when we uh, shared a message about synergy a number of you know months ago, or maybe even a year ago or more? Uh, we said that the, the principle of synergy is that two can accomplish much more than twice as much as two, because there's an exponential curve that that happens. Uh, the principle in Scripture: one can chase a hundred, two can chase a thousand. And, 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 and here's the thing. The reason why I bring up this whole issue about goose is that, is that goose aren't silly. They can actually teach us something about unity and serving and cooperation and encouraging and uplifting one another. 
And then you know what? If geese can do it, then certainly members of the body of Christ can, can be uplifting and serving and exhorting and encouraging one another and caring for one another. Th- th- this, is, this is so important. The reason why it's important is because it's important to God because it's, it's the, the building up of his kingdom. And it's important to God because he loves when brethren dwell together in harmony and unity and serving one another. So this morning, our focus this morning is going to be looking at one of the greatest examples of serving. But, but first, here, here's a statement. I don't know who made this statement, but this is so true, you know. And, and here it is. None are so empty as those who are full of themselves. Isn't that true? None are so empty as, as people who are full of themselves. You, you, you know, you, maybe you know somebody individually, maybe you know some celebrity, and, 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 and you know, you've said, honey, that guy is just so full of himself. He like sucks up the air in the room, you know? You know what I'm talking about? Just, just, every conversation is steered back around that, that person, and, and they're also self-centered and, and so self-minded, you know? And, and, and there's, there's, there's no one who is, who is more full of themselves or, or, or living an empty life. And, and you know what? The opposite is true. Fulfillment in life doesn't come by, by serving oneself, but it comes by serving others. And here's, here's another statement that I kind of crafted. The one who had more reason than any other to be full of himself was the very one who emptied himself for the sake of of others. And we're talking about Jesus. And in this series, we've been, we've been exploring some of the titles and some of the names of Jesus. And this morning, I want to look at one of the titles given to Jesus in both the Old Testament as a prophecy, many prophecies, and also in the New Testament, Jesus is called the servant of God, the servant of God. And Jesus reinforced that title by saying of himself, In Mark chapter 10, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I didn't come for people to wait on me. I came to wait upon people. The only one who should have been, who could have been full of himself without sinning, so emptied himself in humility and in service for others. There are four different portraits of the, the servant of God in the book of Isaiah. And, and I don't have the time, obviously, to, to look at each of these four. I just want to look at the first one, uh, the last one. And, and they're, called, they're called the servant songs. Uh, they're all about the Messiah, about his character, his mission, and, and what he will be like. And, uh, in fact, we, we, we looked at one in a series, and we titled that The Gospel According to Isaiah. It was from the end of chapter 52 through chapter 53. And uh, it's all about the one who was rejected and despised of men, acquainted with grief, uh, the servant of the Lord who bore the sins of many, uh, who was marred more than any other man, whose, whose appearance was, was unrecognizable. And, and we know that to be Jesus and what he suffered at the cross. But I want us to look at the, the beginning, and, and, and let me just say this first, that to connect Jesus to the servant of God is to connect Jesus to the heroes of faith, to the heroes of the Old Testament, to, to those servants that were mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, what's called the Hall of Faith chapter, right? Abraham, 
is first called the servant of God. Moses, more than anybody else in the Old Testament, is called the servant of God. And Moses, we know that what he accomplished was to physically deliver the nation of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. But Jesus is far greater than Moses as the servant of God because he is, he is God of the house, who, who, who is the only one who is able to deliver men from sin and death and Satan's power. And and his deliverance is far greater than Moses' physical deliverance out of. And, and, and the, ser- the servants in the Old Testament were called like the prophets, like Elijah is called the servant of God. And the other prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, they're called servants of God because they had the words of God. But Jesus is greater for he is the very word of God. So I want to look at, at, at two portions of Scripture this morning, one from the old and then one uh, quintessential example from the new. And we'll begin in uh, verse 1 of Isaiah 42. And, and this is probably familiar to many of you. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He'll not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter nor be discouraged. Uh, It's Matthew who says that this might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, and he quotes this when Jesus healed a whole bunch of people, and what Jesus would, would do often is he would say, don't make it known because his hour had not yet come. And, 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 and what Isaiah said concerning his character and his nature and, and the way he will be like when he comes, he will be tender, he will be gentle, a smoking wick he'll not extinguish, he'll not crush, the life that's almost about to go out, he'll, he'll, he'll not put it out. He, he's unobtrusive, he's, he's uh, unassuming, in his character. He says, don't, don't tell anybody that it was me. Right? After he raised Jairus' daughter from, from death, he says, just give her something to eat. Don't, don't tell anybody. He's unassuming. How unique is this one we call Savior? In, in a world in which the strong eat the weak, the Savior has come to support the weak. He doesn't despise the needy, but in compassion, his heart goes out to the needy. As a shepherd, he looked at the people as sheep, not having a shepherd, and he was moved with compassion. This is the fulfillment of Isaiah 42. I came not to serve, but, I'm sorry, I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life a ransom for many. Uh, you, you, know, you know what's so amazing about this? Uh, is that we're talking about the second member of the Godhead. We're talking about the self-existent, eternal, all-glorious Son of God who has come among us to serve. You know, one of the great benefits of believing in the Trinity, you know, that that we believe that there is one God eternally existing in three persons, you know, those who believe that God is just one, you know, and we believe that God is one, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, but we believe that God is revealed in three 
distinct persons. And the reason why this is so good, even though you can't wrap your mind around it, it is a mystery that, that, that you can't explain. You know, you, you have to embrace it as it's revealed in Scripture. But, but what, what I can understand, what I can glean from the, the knowledge of the, the triune God is that they were a perfect community from everlasting Perfect in loving one another and supporting one another and esteeming one another and reverencing one another. And, and, and a perfect community of Father, Son, and Spirit, which tells me because, because God wasn't just one person, but God manifested in three persons, that he knew love eternally. That in other words, and follow along with me, that he did not create the universe because he had a need. In fact, one of the definitions of God is that he is sufficient within himself. He has no need. There is nothing that God needs. If God had a need, then he would not be God. So, so, so this God who did not have a need, who was self-sufficient, did not create a universe because he needed to be loved because there was a perfect love and harmony and joy within the Godhead already. It tells me that the reason why God made men and angels, the reason why God created beings was to not receive love, but to give his love away, to pour his love out in an unselfish, the, the most unselfish manner that we can possibly imagine. The extravagant love of God, God created man God created a universe so that it might be the canvas upon which his love could be poured out. Isn't that beautiful? The extravagant creation of man was so that God could show his, his ravished heart, his glorious love for men. For God was under no obligation to create a universe. He was under no compulsion. The person who should have been most full of himself, has emptied himself on the behalf of others. This is the incarnation. And, and, and the incarnation that God became a man, not simply that God became a man, but the way in which God became a man. He, he, didn't, become a man, he didn't become a man in, in a king's palace. He, he was born in a stable. Uh, he came through a virgin's womb. I mean, you can't get any lower than that, in, in the midst of poverty, for, for although he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that we through his poverty might be made rich. Think about this. This is one of the reasons why the lie, the lie is shattered into a million pieces. The lie that the maker and the creator of the universe is selfish. He's not, he, 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 he's, that lie that was whispered in the garden of paradise, that God is withholding his best from you, that God doesn't care for you, he doesn't really want you to succeed, that lie has been smashed by the incarnation. You know, you've heard the expression, a picture is worth a thousand words, right? And uh, we, have a, we have a picture that is worth more than all of the love songs that God could have sung to us, more than all of the poetry he could have quoted to us. We have, we have a picture of the Son of God bleeding, broken, and battered that moves 
the soul and melts the heart. The picture is worth a thousand words. John says, hereby we perceive the love of God because he laid down his life for us. So, so I'd like us to, to look a little closer now at a New Testament revelation of this, this servant of God. And it's, and it's, it's probably uh, one of the, the greatest little sections of theology that we will ever take a look at. It's uh, Paul's letter to the Philippians chapter 2. But, you know, context is, is so very important to understanding what Paul is saying here. So, so let me just give you the context. In chapter 2, Paul has been, has been encouraging the believers in the church not to be selfish, not to be petty-minded or, 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 or be filled with selfish ambition, but rather to serve one another in humility, right? So, so here's the principle. Here's the words. But now Paul, Paul wants to draw a picture because a picture is worth a thousand words. And so he gives for us an example of what this looks like by, by letting this same attitude, this same mind being you that was also in Christ Jesus. So this is Philippians chapter 2. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, all that constitutes God, the attributes of God, the, the, the character of God, the eternality of God, being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be retained or, or clutched onto taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, because he is a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That's the heart of our series name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, among men and angels and demons, they shall confess, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The perfect illustration of what this attitude should look like for people who are followers of Christ. If you name the name of Jesus, then, then this should be your attitude, the very same attitude that was in Jesus who emptied himself. Though he was very God in the very nature of God. So let's, let's, let's take a look at this. Some commentators believe that Paul was inspired by uh, the actions that took place on the part of Jesus uh, the night in which he was betrayed. Uh, when the supper had ended, Jesus took the towel and the basin and he took out his outer garments and he began to wash me. We've talked about that on numerous occasions. And so what they suggest is that Paul is, is drawing a parallel, and, and there are parallels here in these verses that I thought would be really good for us to make some comparison. So in John chapter 13, right, uh, it says, Jesus having loved his own, he loved them to the very end, knowing that he came from the Father, he was now about to depart back to the Father. And then it says, 
that from the table he laid aside his outer garment. So, so in John 13, he, he laid aside his outer garment. But in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, from his pre-existent equality with God, Jesus laid aside the garment of his splendor and his glory. He, he laid that aside, his glorious light. In John 13, Jesus clothed himself with a towel. And in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says that Jesus clothed himself with human nature, a body you have prepared for me. In John 13, Jesus performs the, the, the menial task of washing dirty feet. And in Philippians chapter 2, Jesus takes on himself the very form of a slave, a servant, that which was reserved only for the slaves. In John 13, when Jesus finished, he once again took his garment, put it back on, and took his place back at the table. And in Philippians chapter 2, we just looked at, after having completed his task, Jesus is now exalted to the very highest place, and he once again sits on the throne of majesty on high. And what John 13 is talking about is a parable. It is, it is the illustration. It's the essence of his ministry, that, if, that whoever would be great among you, let him become the least of all and the servant of all. That's, that's the essence of his teaching. And at the end of that, he said, he said, if I am your master and your Lord, and so I am because that's what I am, you call me Lord. So at the end of Philippians chapter 2, Paul says, that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is what? He's Lord. This is, what, this is why this message is so outrageous. This is why this, not my message, but, but Paul's message. This is why these scriptures are so over the top. Because what we're talking about is, we're talking about the God who spoke the universe into existence. He has come among us for this very purpose. This, this was his mission, to serve and not to be served. The point of what Paul is making here is that Jesus is completely and truly man, just as he is completely and truly God, the only one who should have been full of himself, emptied himself for the sake of you and me. And so Paul is, in this portion of Scripture, the practical use of it, he's calling, he's calling us, he's calling the Philippians to become followers of Jesus in humility and to serve one another and to honk. As we're flapping our wings through this journey of life, that we're honking and we're, and we're encouraging one another and we're uplifting one another and we're serving one another and we're washing one another's feet. The preexistent Son of God did not regard equality with God as being too great for him to take upon himself a human nature and suffer as a man. In fact, in fact, I want to say not only was it, was it not too much for him, it, was, it, it, it is what qualified him to be the only one who was able and sufficient to be able to offer a sacrifice unto God that would be acceptable because if he was just a man, then his life would have not been precious and his life would have not been 
so valuable. It is because he was the God-man that, that his life became so infinitely valuable. If he, if he was just a man, he would be just another Jewish martyr among so many who laid down their lives for the sake of the kingdom of God. But this is, this is, this is the man, Christ Jesus. This is the God, the creator, the maker of heaven and earth who is worth all of mankind because he is mankind's creator. Remember the context that Paul is making this point is that this should be precisely our attitude as we journey through this life. Humility, not being full of ourselves, esteeming others as better than ourselves. Let, let, let not every man think about his own interest, but the interest of others. This is unselfish. Could there be anybody more unselfish than God? Is there anybody more unselfish than this? who came among us and who did this. And, and I think the climax of what Paul is saying is verse 8. And, and he says, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus didn't simply humble himself by becoming a man. That, that would have been a leap beyond our comprehension for the creator to become one with the creation. But, but Paul is saying that it wasn't simply in humility that he became a man. He became a slave. And still greater, still more, is that he didn't just simply become a slave. He became an obedient slave, an obedient slave to the point of death. And not just to death itself, but to the, to the manner of death, the cross. The cross. We... we, we I've said this before, we lose, the sense of, we, lo we lose the sensitivity to the cross because the first century, it was the greatest scandal to, to be identified with a crucified Savior. Only the scum of society were crucified. And so God, lowering himself, greater than, than in our imagination, to be crucified as the scum of society even the death of the cross. To be hung naked upon a cross is the lowest degradation and humility that God could have ever, ever imagined. And he did that voluntarily, knowing by the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God. I'll close with this thought. In the classic autobiography of The Hiding Place, Corey Tambum tells story of humiliation at the hands of the Nazis in what was called Ravensbuck Concentration Camp. I don't know, maybe you're not familiar with the story, but she and her sister were, were uh, prisoners of the Nazis for having helped uh, Christian, uh, for having helped Jewish people escape the, uh, the Nazis. She writes this, Fridays were the recurrent humiliation of medical inspection. The hospital corridor in which we all waited was unheated and the fall chill had settled into the walls. Still, we were forbidden to even wrap ourselves in our own arms, but had to maintain our hands at our side. As we filed slowly past grinning guards, how there could be any pleasure in the sight of, of sickly legs and 
hungry, bloated stomachs, I can't imagine. Surely there was no more wretched sight than the human body unloved and uncared for. Nor could I see the necessity for completely undressing. When we finally reached the examining room, a doctor looked down each throat, another a dentist presumably at our teeth, a third in between each finger. And that was all. We trooped again down the long, cold corridor and picked up our X-marked dresses at the door. But it was on one of these mornings while we were waiting, shivering in the corridor, that yet another passage from the Bible leapt into life for me. And this was her thought. He hung naked on the cross. She writes, I, I had never thought of that. She writes that the paintings in the carved crucifixes, at the very least, have a scrap of cloth. But this, she says, I realized was the respect and the reverence of the artist. But on that Friday morning, there had been no reverence. No one that I saw in the faces, no more than what I saw in the faces of those around us. I leaned toward Betsy, her sister, ahead of me in line. Her shoulder blades stood out sharp beneath her blue skin. Betsy, she whispered, they took his clothes too. They took his clothes away. And I heard a little gasp, oh, Corey, I never thought of that, and I never thanked him. In that moment of degradation, at the hands of her captives, her eyes were opened to a far greater humiliation and degradation of Yahweh incarnate, who was crucified, nailed to a tree, naked, for you and for me. Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness like the sun, when the prince of peace, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. The vision of this ought to melt our hearts and move our souls so that this should be our attitude. This should be the way in which we live. If he lived this way, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who being found in the appearance of a man, humbled himself and became obedient, even to the death of the cross. The one who was so ill-treated by men, God has made both Lord and Christ. The one who was obedient to the point of death now requires our obedience. What I want you to leave with this is simply this, that the only one who deserves honor, reverence, and respect emptied himself for the sake of others. He's the only one who deserves our reverence, our honor, our worship, but he emptied himself for our sake. I've got to just say one more thing, one more scripture before I close, and, and, and that is, again, it's found from the book of Isaiah. And, and it really is what Paul was thinking about. I know this because it's a quotation from this. But, but it really puts, 
puts in life. You know, s- some people have suggested that, that Jesus never claimed to be God. That, that the first century believers, they, they didn't think that Jesus was God. That was something that kind of evolved later on, centuries later. No, no, no. That, that is ridiculous. Here is one of the great proofs, Philippians chapter 2. But beside from that, I mean, there's so many others. But, but here, listen to what Isaiah 45 says. There is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. For I am God and there is no other. It is to me, says this God, that every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. That's exactly what Paul had in mind when he said that the day is coming when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. Jesus Christ is Lord. In the Old Testament, it says that they confess their allegiance. Let me ask, what about you? Have you confessed your allegiance to him? Have you confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's not you saving you, not you keeping yourself, but you believing that he is able to save unto the uttermost everyone that comes unto God through him. What a gift. God can't give us anything more than giving himself poured out for us. This ought to melt our hearts and this ought to move our souls so that we would not live for ourselves, but we would live for the one who gave himself for us. You know, there's a a thought this morning, when, when we become loyal to him, there's a verse in the Old Testament where it says that God's, is, God's eye is searching to and fro throughout all the earth to show himself strong on the behalf of those whose hearts are loyal toward him. There's a lot of benefits that come to us when we are loyal toward him. He shows himself strong. Do you need help this morning? Do you need healing this morning? Do you need comfort this morning? Are you finding yourself in a situation where you need courage, where you need encouragement, where you need to have somebody honk and uplift you? He does so. And he's the one, more than anyone else, who wants to lift us up. If we will humble ourselves underneath his mighty hand, He says, in due season, he will lift us up. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for the precious word of God that is able to build us up and to give us an inheritance in Christ. I thank you, Father, that you have spoken words of grace and words of life and words of healing to our hearts this morning so that we could know the heart of God, that we could understand and we could see just how precious you are for the one who should have been full of himself, who could have been full of himself, emptied himself for the sake of others. And I thank you that you did that this morning for me, for my brothers and sisters here in this place today. And now, Lord God, I ask you to move in this 
assembly today, Lord God, move among us now. I, I pray for those that need healing that right now that the power of God would course through this service and touch and heal broken bodies and men broken hearts as well. And for those that need a touch of God this morning, and even more than that, for, for, for those that need to confess their allegiance and their loyalty to Christ, I, I pray that they would say a simple prayer this morning, and they, and they would say something simply like this. And, and if this applies to you, would you do this right now before we turn it over to the worship team? Would you just, if you're ready to do that, would you just simply say, Jesus, I confess you as Lord and Savior. Forgive me of my sins. Come into my life. I receive you as my, my, my Christ, my Savior, my Messiah. And I thank you for that. I thank you that with you there's forgiveness of sins. And if you, if you did that, tell somebody before you leave this morning and let somebody pray with you and pray for you. Let's all stand together as we worship one more time in this place.